Open your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 2. We'll be in verses 12 to 36 this morning. 1 Samuel chapter 2, verses 12 to 36 is where we're going to be. One of the privileges of home ownership is tending the grounds. One of the things that I've, I've come to realize how much I loathe is the crepe myrtle tree. Now in Texas, we love them because they were drought resistant. You could, the heat couldn't kill them. And you didn't even really need to water them. The problem is, if you really need to kill one, you can't do it. They just last forever. We made the mistake of cutting one down and trying to poison it and trying to get rid of it in one way or another. And here we are five years later and shoots continue to come up from the ground wherever the roots have touched. In every area where the roots have spread, there are shoots that come up all the time. And so for us, this past weekend, we decided we'd had enough of it and we decided to work our way down the roots until we found that root ball and commenced to hacking with an axe. Now, do you know how tough as stone a tree root is, and particularly a crepe myrtle tree? It's difficult. But continually, it's got to be done. You have to, if you want to get rid of it, you have to find all the way back to the source of the root and chop it out. Otherwise, it will continue to grow for the entire life shoots will rise up from the ground. In our passage this morning in 1 Samuel chapter 2, God has been dealing with and has announced that He's going to revive the king, establish His kingdom. And the problem is right now, He's got a, a kingdom made of simply ash. They have burned the law of Moses to the ground. There's absolutely hardly any of it left. And God is going to establish His kingdom on top of that ash. But to do so, He's going to trace down the problem all the way to the root. And we find that root is in the priesthood itself. Let's look at our passage this morning in 1 Samuel chapter 2, verses 12-36. to 36. Now the sons of Eli were worthless men. They did not know the Lord. The custom of the priests with the people was that when any man offered sacrifice, the priest's servant would come while the meat was boiling with a three-pronged fork in his hand, and he would thrust it into the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot. All that the fork brought up, the priest would take for himself. This is what they did at Shiloh to all the Israelites who came there. Moreover, before the fat was burned, the priest's servant would come and say to the man who was sacrificing, Give meat for the priest to roast, for he will not accept boiled meat from you, but only raw. And if the man said to him, Let them burn the fat first, and then take as much as you wish, he would say, No, you must give it now, and if not, I will take it by force. Thus the sin of the young men was very great in the sight of the Lord, for the men treated the offering of the Lord with contempt. Samuel was ministering before the Lord, a boy clothed with a linen ephod. And his mother used to make for him a little robe and take it to him each year when, he, when she went up with her husband to offer the yearly sacrifice. 
Then Eli would bless Elkanah and his wife and say, May the Lord give you children by this woman for the petition she asked of the Lord. So then they would return to their home. Indeed, the Lord visited Hannah, and she conceived and bore three sons and two daughters. And the boy, Samuel, grew in the presence of the Lord. Now Eli was very old, and he kept hearing all that his sons were doing to all Israel and how they lay with the women who were serving at the entrance to the tent of meeting. And he said to them, Why do you do such things? For I hear of all your evil, of your, of your evil dealings from all these people. No, my sons, it is no good report that I hear the people of the Lord spreading abroad. If someone sins against a man, God will mediate for him. But if someone sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? But they would not listen to the voice of their father, for it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. Now the boy Samuel continued to grow both in stature and in favor with the Lord and also with man. Now there came a man of God to Eli and said to him, Thus says the Lord, Did I indeed reveal myself to the house of your father when they were in Egypt, subject to the house of Pharaoh? Did I choose him out of all the tribes of Israel to be my priest, to go up to my altar to burn incense, to wear an ephod before me? I gave to the house of your father all my offerings by fire from the people of Israel. Why then do you scorn my sacrifices and my offerings that I commanded for my dwelling and honor your sons above me by fattening yourselves on the choicest parts of every offering of my people Israel? Therefore the Lord, the God of Israel, declares, I promised that your house and the house of your father should go in and out before me forever. But now the Lord declares, far be it from me. For those who honor me I will honor, and those who despise me shall be lightly esteemed. Behold, the days are coming when I will cut off your strength and the strength of your father's house, so that there will not be an old man in your house. Then in distress you will look with envious eye on all the prosperity that shall be bestowed on Israel, and there shall not be an old man in your house forever. The only one of you whom I shall not cut off from my altar shall be spared to weep his eyes out, uh, to weep his eyes out to grieve his heart. And all the descendants of your house shall die by the sword of men. And this shall come upon your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, shall be a sign to you. Both of them shall die on the same day. And I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who shall do according to what is in my heart and in my mind. And I will build him a sure house and he shall go in and out before my anointed forever. And everyone who is left in your house shall come to implore him for a piece of silver or a loaf of bread and shall say, please put me in one of the priest's places that I may eat a morsel of bread. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we know the word that is before us is tough, difficult even to understand, but difficult even more to apply. So we pray that you would open our minds and hearts that we may hear what you're saying, see what is in your word, and apply it to our hearts so we may obey it. Father, we pray for every heart and mind in here. Some may be ready to hear the word, some may be not. We pray that you would tear down every exterior wall, every callous, every hard heart, and apply the word yourself. Speak directly to us through your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it bears repeating that... The beginning of the book of 1 Samuel overlaps with the book of Judges. 
So when you get in the Old Testament to the book of Judges and you get to the end of it and then you get to the beginning of the book of 1 Samuel, there is some overlap, it seems, a fair amount. In all likelihood, Samuel's very early life comes right at the tail end of Samson's life there as serving as judge in Israel toward the end of the book of Judges. But the reason why that's important is because it helps us to understand the context that the book of 1 Samuel falls in. The nation of Israel is being judged. And at the very end of the book of Judges, where these rescuers have come in time and again to spare Israel of its wickedness. And remember we talked about last week how it's not just a cycle that they get into of sin and repentance, but it's kind of like a toilet bowl. They're spiraling down very quickly. Well, at the end of the book of Judges, we get in 21 verse 25, In those days there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. So in other words, when you open the book of 1 Samuel, what you understand immediately is that there are dark skies with the chance of judgment being 100%. It's going to rain, and you know how dark it is. There's wickedness in the land. It's so pervasive that it seems as though there's no hope of redemption whatsoever. The entire nation is cast into despair. It seems that no one is following the Lord. The author of Judges there at the very end makes you keenly aware that there's no one that's following after the Lord. Everyone's just doing what is right in his own eye. But when you open on the book of 1 Samuel, you actually get this glimmer or this little ember on the ash heap that's slowly starting to burn. And that is in the person of Elkanah and his wife, Hannah. Elkanah and his family journey from up to Shiloh every year, it seems, to give sacrifice. So immediately you know, well, that's better than everyone doing what's right in his own eyes, right? This guy, it seems, actually wants to submit to the law of the Lord at least in some way. He has some kind of inkling that he knows what he should be doing. His wife, Hannah, seems to be Uh, morally upright. She's praying to the Lord. So already we're off to a better start, at least. But, and there's a big but, Hannah is one of two wives in that family. That's not good. Also, Hannah is barren. Double not good. So you've got a a treacherous situation already in the midst of an ash heap where God is supposedly going to build His kingdom. There doesn't seem to be much to work with. But in her grief, obviously we saw last week, and through her tears, she's praying to God and asking for a son. And if the Lord grants her request, she promises to take that son, give him to Eli in the temple, and he will serve all his years there with Eli, who is the priest. So she's walking along crying, and she sees Eli in the temple. He sees her. He thinks she's drunk. And so he says to her, get rid of your wine. She explains her problem, and so instead he corrects his mistake, and he gives her a blessing. And as she goes home, the Lord opens her womb. She has a child. And the beginning of chapter 2, Hannah prays this prayer to the Lord, where she sees the child in her womb, or the child being born, as actually setting a different kind of tone, something that the Lord is going to do. This symbolizes a reversal that the Lord is going to bring to the nation of Israel. She actually sees this as changing all kinds of things. And Hannah's prayer at the beginning of chapter 2 actually sets the tone 
for the entire book of First and Second Samuel. She tells us that the birth of her son signals that God is doing something in the world where He's going to establish His kingdom from the ashes. And when He does that, He's going to reverse the tides of all those who are living, pardon the expression, high on the hog. Who are, who are floating by life, who are rich, and who are making all their riches off the backs of other people. Who are carrying out injustice after injustice on every person that they meet. He's, go, he's going to bring down the proud by humiliating them. Absolutely humiliating them. And further, he's going to build his kingdom on the backs of the humble. So God's going to establish his kingdom, and he's going to save Israel, but he's going to do it by bringing judgment on Israel. So Hannah has the child, and she fulfills the vow that she made, where she gives her firstborn son to Samuel to Eli, so that he could serve in the temple all the days of his life. Now, the story is going to transition very quickly. This first section that we're in is about chapters 1 through almost 7, maybe even into 8, is all about Samuel before we ever get to the kings. So it's going to transition to Samuel, but we're going to make a quick stop on the way to Eli and his sons in our passage this morning. Samuel is going to be an instrument that God uses to bring the judgment on his people. But first, he's got to announce the fact that he's cleaning house. That I'm going to come in and I'm going to clean house. And to do that, he's going to prove his case to his people by showing exactly what's going on. So first, he's going to expose the sins at the root. He's going to get down to the root of the problem and expose the sins at the root. Last week, we were introduced to Eli, the elderly priest in Israel, and his two sons, Hophni and Phinehas. We were only told their names, but here they are in all their glory serving in uh, the temple or the tabernacle there in Shiloh. Uh, you might think of Eli as something of a senior priest. He's older. He's getting very old to the, fact that, to the point where he can't really carry out a lot of his duties. And it seems like his sons, Hophni and Phinehas, are carrying out the vast majority of the priestly responsibilities there in the temple or the tabernacle at Shiloh. We find that what is going on there in Shiloh is, how shall we say, less than upright. In fact, the sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, are introduced to us in verse 12, he says, as worthless men. And he says specifically, they do not know the Lord. Now, I know what you might be thinking. Aren't they priests in Israel? Aren't they supposed to be? Serving in the... How can you have a priest serving out these responsibilities in the tabernacle and not knowing the Lord? See, they were born of the priestly line. They were great, 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 great grandsons of Aaron, Moses' brother. They served in the priestly line. They were born of the priestly line. But they are proof that you could be the most holy people in Israel and have no knowledge of the Lord whatsoever. Not at all know the Lord. In other words, you could be in Israel and not be redeemed. You could be spawn of Satan, children of hell in the nation of Israel. In fact, even serving as priest in the nation of Israel. Similar to how you could go to church for your entire life and not actually be a Christian. Or as you've heard it said, you can go to McDonald's 
and not be a chicken nugget, chicken McNugget. But a perfect example of how wicked things are in Israel is that the priests didn't even know God. What an indictment this is on the priesthood in Israel. They didn't know God. So having no regard for God, they used to take advantage of the sacrifices in the temple. So Joe Worshipper and his family come up to the, the temple or the tabernacle there in Shiloh with their sacrifice. They got it boiling in a kettle. And some temple lackey comes out of the back with a pronged fork in his hand and he stabs it in the pot and pulls out the meat and whatever he takes out belongs to the priest. But then you see, they got really clever. And they thought, well, that's good, but it's still boiled meat. You ever had boiled meat? It's not that good. I mean, barbecue is better, right? So they go to him and they say, they catch him before it ever goes in the pot. And they say, look, look, look. Why don't you just let me take out the raw meat first and then, and then you, can, you can finish cooking it or you can cook it? Well, at the end of this, if the worshiper pushed back against the lackey, if he gave any resistance at all, he would then take it by force. Now, this is a big no-no according to the law. Leviticus 3.16 says this, And the priest shall burn them on the altar as, food, as a food offering with a pleasing aroma. All fat is the Lord's. And violation of that law came at a pretty stiff penalty just a few chapters later in the book of Leviticus. Chapter 7, verse 25. For every person who eats the fat of an animal of which a food offering may be made to the Lord shall be cut off from his people. So there's a stiff penalty for taking the fat out of the offering. It's the best part of the animal. Amen, somebody. Right? USDA prime, please. So you see in 1 Samuel 2.16, it says, If the man said to him, Let them burn the fat first, and then take as much as you wish, he would say, No, you must give it now, and if not, I will take it by force. So presumably, you had some worshipers in Israel who had some sort of Godward conscience, who at least had some sort of remembrance of the law in Leviticus, it says the fat belongs to the Lord, and they would push back, but the priest's barbecue lackey would take the meat before the fat was ever burned up so that they could cook their ribeyes out back over the fire properly, like a true Texan. This is not only robbed the Lord of what was rightly His, but it also took advantage of the worshipers, you understand. It's a two-point swing. They're taking... What, what belongs to the Lord, that's one part of it. The other part is they're actually robbing what would be a true worshiper of his sacrifice. So you're taking advantage of both people, both God and of the would-be worshiper. So he says in verse 17, Thus the sin of the young men was very great in the sight of the Lord. For the men treated the offering of the Lord with contempt. But what do we find in the very next verse, in verse 18, right after that? But that Samuel was the exact opposite of those, those priests, of Hophni and Phinehas. He was ministering before the Lord, even as a very young man. Hannah, his mom, would come up there and bring him a, a little robe every year. It got a little bigger as he, as he grew older. 
And, and when she did, Eli, there at the entrance of the temple, would bless her, would thank her and bless her for what she's done. And then she would go home, and, and the Lord continued to honor Eli's prayer and granted her more children. And so she ultimately had three more sons and two more daughters. And the section ends right there in verse 21. Look at it. It says, And the boy Samuel grew in the presence of the Lord. So we're seeing this reversal take place in the text. Who is going down in the eyes of the Lord? Hophni and Phinehas. Who is going up in the eyes of the Lord? It's Samuel. He's serving the Lord faithfully there in the temple. He's in no way implicated in all the shenanigans that are going on with Hophni and Phinehas. How he served in the temple and didn't get involved with Hophni and Phinehas is beyond me, except that the Lord protected him from it. And then the family that he represents, Hannah and Elkanah, are continuing to be blessed and grow and have many children as well, even though Hannah has had her womb closed in the past. She comes to town, she drops off a robe, she's blessed by Eli. Subsequently, God grants her a child when she goes home, and on and on the cycle goes. But for Hophni and Phinehas, and for Eli, not only are they going down in the eyes of the Lord, but their lineage is going to stop, whereas Hannah's continues to grow. The barbecue train for Hophni and Phinehas is about to come to a screeching halt. But first, Eli is going to get wind of what's going on, and he's going to give them what amounts to be a half-hearted rebuke, a half-hearted reproof. It seems that barbecue was not the only offense Hophni and Phinehas were guilty of. Look at what it says in verse 22. Now Eli was very old, and he kept hearing all that his sons were doing to all Israel and how they lay with the women who were serving at the entrance of the tent of meeting. So they were also taking advantage of the women that were serving there in the temple. Now these are not just ordinary worshipers that would come up to the, the temple. It, it seems that this was a group of women. We see only referenced a couple of times in Scripture, and one of those times is in Exodus 38, 8. And we're not going to turn there, but 38, 8. And then we see another veiled reference, it seems like, in Judges 11. You may remember Judges 11 from this guy named Jephthah who makes this vow to the Lord just he makes a rash vow and he says the next thing he has a victory in battle you know the next thing that comes out of my house i'm going to dedicate to the lord and out walks his daughter and he's just heartbroken over it and then a lot of people take that to mean that he ended up killing and sacrificing his daughter which is not at all what's in view there what happens is that he has to take his virgin daughter and dedicate her to service in the temple that's what he made the vow to the lord to do and so he promised the Lord that that's what he's going to do, and he then gives her to the temple, and she has to go weep because she's a virgin. She hasn't produced any children whatsoever, and this makes him mourn because it effectively cuts off his line in some respects. But these women essentially served in the tabernacle or the temple. They served the Lord, and it seems like by all indications in Scripture, they did so in celibacy. And so here are Hophni and Phinehas. They do not know the Lord, they're robbing people of, of their sacrifice. They're robbing God of His sacrifice. They're robbing women of their virginity. And they're robbing God of the servants in the temple. So that all across the board, they are robbing God and people. They are predators in every sense of the word. But you notice what's happening now. The reputation of these scoundrels is making the rounds. 
And word makes its way back to the ears of Eli. And so he goes to them in verse 23, and look at what he says there. Why do you do such things? For I hear of your evil dealings from all these people. No, my sons, it's no good report that I hear the people of the Lord spreading abroad. Let me ask you, especially fathers, is that how you would discipline your sons if you heard that they were predators and they were thieves? Is that what you would do? Does that sound like discipline when your son is stealing from the Lord and preying on women? What would you do as a dad? That doesn't even amount to a discipline that I would enact, much less what the Lord would do. Eli's reproof is weak. Now remember what it said in Leviticus? What the response was to be? If they were merely taking the fat from the sacrifice, what were they supposed to do? The, law, the violator of the law was to be cut off and separated from his people. So what Eli should have done is sent these boys packing. Literally cut them off from serving in the altar and in the tabernacle and sent them away. But what he gave instead is this soft, very half-hearted rebuke. So God is actually going to mention this later in chapter 3, verse 13. Just one chapter later, he says, I'm about to punish his house forever for the iniquity that he knew because his sons were blaspheming God and he did not restrain them. So essentially what you've got is Eli should have fired them on the spot. And lucky that he didn't put them to death, but he at least should have sent them packing, and he didn't. Nevertheless, in verse 25, he does make a good point. Look at what it says there. If someone sins against a man, God will mediate for him. But if someone sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? You understand what he's saying? The problem is the priesthood. That's what we're looking at. The problem is the priesthood. But the bigger problem about that is the priests interceded to God on behalf of all the people. Do you understand what's cutting off the ability from the people to even commune with God? To pay their, their honor and their allegiance and, their, and the Lord's due to Him? To come forward and worship? The very priests who are supposed to be there to receive them, to teach them, to take their sacrifices, is manipulating them. There's a problem in the priesthood. If the priesthood is corrupt, how can worship of the Lord ever continue in the nation? So he says that if God is the judge between you and someone else, in other words, if there's a problem between you and your neighbor, and God is going to be the judge hearing the complaint, if you did nothing wrong, if you are in the right, then you can trust that your case is not only going to be heard, but you're going to be on the winning end. Because God always executes justice perfectly. But let me ask you this. What happens when God is not only the judge, but the prosecuting attorney? What happens to a man when God is not only the judge, but He's also the one who's been offended? And He takes up the case, and He goes to accusing you. What happens to that man? How could someone possibly stand in the courtroom of God where God is the judge and also the prosecutor? What the result is, is that he has no defense. 
So Eli's sons, the priests and the mediators of the covenant, have stolen from the Lord. They've taken advantage of His servant. And so when God takes up the case against them, there's no hope for them. God is going to cut them off. Justice is coming, and it's going to start right here in the household of God with His priests. But that reproof, whether it was strong or weak, it, it, he says, the author says it wouldn't have spared his sons at all from the coming judgment. The author tells us at the end of verse 25, they would not listen to the voice of their father. Why? For it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. Not, they wouldn't listen to the voice of their father, so it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. No. He says, they would not listen to the voice of their father, for, because, it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. In other words, God had closed their ears from hearing anything from their father. They would not turn at his rebuke in any way. Why? Because the Lord was going to kill them. And then there's Samuel again. Look at verse 26. Now the boy Samuel continued to grow both in stature and in favor with the Lord and also with men. So you understand the reversal continues. At first he was growing before the Lord while Hophni and Phinehas were shrinking before the Lord. Now he's growing in, in stature, in favor with the Lord and with men, while for Hophni and Phinehas, they have been growing in disfavor with the Lord and in disfavor with the people of the town who have begun to spread what they're doing around till it reached the ears of Eli. But Samuel, on the other hand, is progressing in moral inclination toward God, and he also has people talking about him in a good way, though. There's hope on the horizon. So this reversal is actually going to continue. It's going to come to a head all the way into next chapter where Samuel becomes the prophet from north to south all over the land. Everybody knows about Samuel. And just a few verses later, Hophni and Phinehas are going to come to death. But first, God is about to give Eli a full-hearted rebuke. So he gives his sons a half-hearted reproof here God is about to give Eli a full-hearted rebuke. And he does this through one of the prophets. And it needs to be noted that as dark as the nation of Israel is, God always seems to leave a remnant. Make no mistake about it. It is dark. These are ashes with very few embers. But God always leaves a remnant. We've seen Hannah and Elkanah. But now we see this unnamed man who, who comes up to uh, Eli to give a prophecy to tell him what God is up to. And it should also be noted that he's coming to Eli and he's not coming to Hophni and Phinehas. He's not coming to them to tell them their sin and that they're about to die. He comes to Eli because it seems that Eli knows the Lord. He just lacks the moral courage to actually do what is necessary. Why doesn't he rebuke his sons? Because for him, the blood is thicker than obedience to the law of God. But nevertheless, they come up to Eli and to, to discipline him, and the Lord has a very specific rebuke against Eli. Look at verse 28. Did I choose him out of all the tribes of Israel to be my priest? He's talking about Aaron. 
to go up to my altar to burn incense, to wear an ephod before me. I gave to the house of your father all my offerings by fire from the people of Israel. Why then do you scorn my sacrifices and my offerings that I commanded for my dwelling and honor your sons above me by fattening yourselves on the choicest parts of every offering of my people Israel? So God entrusted Aaron's house to which Eli belongs with all of the sacrifices. But instead of Eli taking responsibility for that and seeing his role as being faithful to the Lord, he actually honored his sons by fattening himself with his sons. You understand that? Eli is actually taking part in the eating of these sacrifices. Now, he's old and he's weak and his sons are probably taking care of him to a large extent. They're probably feeding him. But they're taking the fat off the, off the table and they're coming to the dinner table and putting it down before him. And Eli is hearing no evil, seeing no evil, speaking no evil. He is ignoring, not asking any questions, right? But deep down, he seems to know where this food is coming from. And the Lord is bringing judgment upon him and his house precisely because he knows and he says nothing about it. Yet he knows that it's sin. And so the Lord is going to respond to Eli's dishonor of him by dishonoring Eli by cutting him off from the priesthood, all of his family. Notice what the Lord's going to do to him because he ate the fat of the sacrifice in verse 33. Look at what he says. The only one of you whom I shall not cut off from my altar shall be spared to weep his eyes out to grieve his heart. And all the descendants of your house shall die by the sword of men. So he's going to do to Eli what Eli should have done to his sons. Eli should have cut them off from the priesthood altogether and sent them packing. And because he didn't, God is going to cut him off from, all, uh, from serving at the altar and all of his family after that, with the exception of leaving one remnant there to weep over the fact that his whole family is cut off. But Eli is going to feel this in the very near future when in verse 34, Hophni and Phinehas are told they're going to die on the very same day. So in other words, God's judgment is coming to Israel and it's coming first to the household of God, which is the priest serving in the tabernacle. Now, I think most of the time when we hear the word judgment, at least in my mind, I get a picture of fire and brimstone falling from heaven, of people being crushed under the weight of stones, God just going scorched earth on everything. Yes? And that, that's sort of the picture we have in our minds of when we see the word judgment, that that's what we think of. But, but understand that that's not what the Bible exactly means by judgment. That is a type of judgment for sure. But that's not exactly what it means. If that were the case, then the righteous shouldn't look forward to that day. Anytime you see in Scripture where, where it talks about celebrating the Lord's judgment and, and all of these kinds of things, we think, how could you celebrate when you're dodging falling rocks and fire? That doesn't make any sense. But you understand, when the Bible talks about God's judgment, it's really this. God's judgment is when all the works of men are exposed. The wicked are then eradicated and the righteous are rewarded. So when we talk about judgment, God's judgment coming down, it's really talking about exposure. 
All the things done in darkness that men love to do and pursuing darkness and following sin, all of those things are coming to light. That's what God's judgment is. And not only are the wicked deeds coming to light, but the righteous deeds are coming to light as well. So it's really an exposure where the wicked are punished and the righteous are rewarded. Now in that, there's hellfire and brimstone for sure. You understand. But really what we're looking forward to is the exposure God shining a light on all the wicked deeds of darkness and then eradicating them all in one fell swoop. So what that means then, if you're righteous, you have nothing to fear and everything to look forward to. But make no mistake that when God's judgment comes, He takes His axe and lays it to the root so that nothing will ever grow there again. This is way more than Roundup. All right? This is God's axe being laid to the root of wickedness and ripping it out of the earth so that there will never be a shred of wickedness ever again. And what does Eli say here in verse 25? If someone sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? See, while God's judgment is exciting for the righteous, there is a problem for anyone who has sinned against the Lord. So, it gives us excitement, but shouldn't it also give us pause? If what Eli says is true, which I think it is, if someone sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? Think about that for just a second. Which of us in this room can say we've never sinned against the Lord? Ingrained in every single one of us is this feeling of desperation that we know in our heart of hearts that not only have I sinned, I have sinned against God. And Eli senses this feeling of desperation for his sons that perhaps we also ought to think about. And that is, sons... You need to call an attorney. We need an intercessor. Eli understands the nakedness of their sons before the Lord. In fact, who isn't standing naked before the Lord with all his deeds right out there in front of everybody? That God knowing everything about him. Shouldn't that bring to our hearts a feeling of desperation? You see, and really, the situation that Hophni and Phinehas are facing is the situation that all of humanity faces. If you've sinned against God, who can possibly be your intercessor? What man could stand there as your defense attorney while God is bringing the charges against you and stand up and say, uh, excuse me, objection, your honor. And when he turns to the honor in the courtroom, it's also God. What case could he possibly bring? But God says in verse 35, I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who shall do according to what is in my heart and in my mind. And I will build him a sure house and he shall go in and out before my anointed forever. 
And everyone who is left in your house shall come to implore him for a piece of silver or a loaf of bread and shall say, please put me in one of the priest's places that I may eat a morsel of bread. In other words, God is going to reverse the tide of all of this. The wicked who have become rich by taking advantage of all kinds of other people and have professed their independence from God are going to be brought low. And in fact, what they're going to be doing is appealing to this priest that he's going to appoint, that's going to do his will. They're going to be appealing to him for salvation, for provision. Well, we know God is raising up Samuel as a faithful prophet to do the priestly responsibility, sure. But Samuel is only the beginning of the kingdom that God is bringing down to establish on top of the ashes. Where this eventually leads, you, it sees the roles of prophet, priest, and king all united in the person of Jesus Christ, who is going to perfectly accomplish all that is in God's heart and mind. His house will be built forever. It will be Him that everyone asks for provision, that everyone asks for salvation. But Jesus will so fully fulfill the role of priest that all those who have sinned against God can have Him play the role of intercessor. So do you see what is happening in the person of Christ? God is the prosecuting attorney. God is also the judge. But in the person of Christ, God is now playing the role of defense attorney as well. Because He's the only one that can stand between you and God and take the brunt of your punishment, the punishment that you deserve. Who has sinned against God and what man could possibly ever play, play the intercessor? Well, only one. And that man is not only man, but also God. Remember what we prayed. Sinners bring judgment in thinking sins are small or that you are not angry with them. Brothers and sisters, I think we would do well to remember that God does not look at sin lightly and we shouldn't either. While some of the sins of Hophni and Phinehas might seem to be egregious, especially in a Me Too era where we know we look at that, that part of the passage and we're like, oh my goodness, what in the world is going on? But the burning of the fat on the altar, I mean, doesn't seem like that big of a deal, right? Is it? But God does see sin this way. And you notice the sin for which he comes at Eli is the sin that Eli didn't seem to even rebuke his sons over, which is the eating of fat from the table, because Eli knew he was guilty of it as well. But you see, all of these sins, every sin in our life, is all signs of a root of corruption that still lies under the ground. Perhaps there are sins in your own life that you've let linger. And you see the shoots come up from the ground, but you may think nothing of it. You see, we must see sin the way God does. It has roots that lie deep within our heart. So we may see an angry outburst. And we may go, man, yeah, I really deal with angry outbursts. But do you understand that there's a root to that anger that lies far deeper within the human heart? The root is perhaps selfishness. I must have it this way. It's not going my way, and therefore I lash out in anger. Or perhaps it's pride. 
Don't you know that I'm the most important person here? To make you understand that I'm the most important person, I'm going to lash out in anger. Perhaps it's discontentment. I hate this thing that God has given to me. Lashing out in anger is expressing that discontentment. Or maybe it's fear. What happens if I lose control of this? But it's not just anger, lust, desire for things that God did not give you, greed. I don't trust Him to ever provide for me again. Therefore, I've got to take it all in right now. You understand that these shoots that come up from the ground are signs of a root that is much harder to kill. But that is the job of the Christian. But you need to understand that when Jesus came to the earth to die in your place, yes, He died to give you forgiveness of sin. He did come to show us the love of God that while we were still sinners, He died for us. But you understand what He also came to do. He came to inaugurate God's judgment. He came to begin God's judgment by doing it first within His own people. He came to take residence in their hearts and begin exposing, tilling up all the dirt so He could expose all of these roots that lie deep down within us. He's beginning the judgment of God with His own people, you understand. That's what Christians are in the process of doing right now. So that means Christ came not just to forgive us of sin, but actually to purify us from sin. He actually came to lay the axe to the root in your own heart. So what that means is you have no reason to hide your sin from Him at all. If you consider yourself to be a Christian, you have every reason to confess your sin to Him. That's what He's in your heart for. That's why He's showing you the things that He shows you in Scripture. He's not just forgiving you of sin. He wants you to confess it, and He wants you to kill it. He wants that root of sin out of your life altogether. He doesn't want you to be dominated by it. He wants you to dominate it. You see, God's judgment is intended to reward the righteous. But as of right now, we don't stand as righteous people in reality, right? Sure, in the courtroom of God, we stand as righteous because He knows what He's making us into. But right here, short of glory, anything that shoots up from the ground, any sin that I see in my own life, is evidence that I still have a lot of root digging to do. All of that lies deep within the surface. Those shoots of sin in our lives are evidence that there is more work to be done. And by God's grace and the power of the Spirit, He's going to enable us to do it. But what happens if you're ignoring your sin, like Hophni and Phinehas? What happens if you sit there right now and you know the sin that is sitting here on your chest and you think about it and you go, that's really small. It really... It's really kind of meaningless. Like taking the fat off the altar. It really doesn't amount to much. Only I know about it. I'm the only one that's struggling with it. This doesn't impact anyone else. Might that mean 
that like Hophni and Phinehas, God is also closing your ears to the gospel? God is turning your heart away? And what is the purpose of that? Destruction. You understand that as long as you can hear the word of reproof, as long as you can hear the gospel message, repentance is right here in front of you. Repentance can be had. Do you understand that? That what is required is to say, Father, forgive me. What? That's easy. That's, God. That's too easy. No, see? It's, Father, forgive me. I, re- I realize this is sin. I repent. I want to turn away from all of this. But then the backside of that comes the real hard part. Now you actually have to trust that Christ's sacrifice for you on the cross was enough to pay for your sin. And now you have to lean on Him and depend and realize that my very inclusion into the family of God is based on nothing else but the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Confess your sin and trust. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're grateful for your word to us. We pray that we might only be able to believe it. We see people falling in Scripture all the time. And we understand your word to us is repent, trust in Christ. We pray that you would open our ears to hear your word. Open our hearts, examine them, shine your judgmental light on it. Dig up all the roots of bitterness and sin that lie deep within. That we might be presented before your throne holy and blameless. pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.